Tom Wynandy is a Capuchin Franciscan friar um, who's taught in a variety of places in the U.S., including Mount St. Mary's University, the Franciscan University of Steubenville, Georgetown University, Loyola College, but he's also did his PhD at King's in this country and taught for 12 years at Oxford, so is a familiar doesn't have complete cultural shock coming yeah, over just now. He's um, coming, returning. coming back. Yeah. So he's he's written in many areas. His his PhD was in historical theology. So there's a quality of uh, historical precision and richness to all his work, but it's very wide ranging. Um, and he's written many books on Christology and Trinity, and recently on um, New Testament book Gospel and Acts is the next one. Um, but it's perhaps best known for one book called Does God Change and another um, Does God Suffer? Uh, and these have been, I, I think the Does God Suffer book, as far as I can tell, really created a kind of pivot in the theological world uh, and, and just brought about single-handedly, maybe not single-handedly, but it was kind of decisive in shifting the balance of what was accepted as... Um, theologically obvious, and there's at least became a, a clear debate again and, and strengthened uh, a more traditional position on the question of God's suffering. So I've always valued uh, Father Wynandi's work for the, the range of knowledge, the clarity with which he writes, and the precision of the thoughts. So it's really wonderful to, um, to welcome you here to talk on the theme of Does God Suffer? Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, when I was teaching at Oxford, I, I, my doctoral thesis was Does God Change the Words Becoming in the Incarnation? And then I wrote, uh, published in 2000, Does God Suffer? And one of the students here, will you ever write a book where the answer is, with question is answered, and ask and the answer is yes? Well I, well, I haven't written a book like that. Uh, but at, anyway. Um, but it is, I'm honored to, and pleased to be able to speak with all of you this evening. And um, uh, I, I do so not simply as an American citizen, but as one of you. Uh, I'm also a British uh, citizen. Uh, since I was living in Oxford so long, I thought following St. Paul's um, uh, example that uh, I should uh, be all things to all men and so I thought well I should be an Englishman then. <laughs> so I took out, uh, I got British uh, citizens and unlike most of you probably I've actually made an oath of loyalty to the, to the Queen and her government on a Bible. Um, so normal citizens don't have to do such things. <laughs> doing. So anyway, so I hope tonight that uh, what I have to say uh, you find interesting and helpful. But I'd like to begin just with a prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Uh, Lord Jesus, we give you glory and praise, and we ask you that you send forth your spirit of wisdom and knowledge upon us, especially your spirit of love, that in coming to know you better, we might love you more. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name, for you are the Lord, and you live forever and ever. Amen. 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 All right. Well, um, as um, all of you know, for uh, 2,000 years, um, it was held that God, the Trinity, uh, was immutable 
he didn't change, uh, that God was impassable, he didn't undergo uh, emotional changes of state. Um, and that was axiomatic from, from the fathers of the church all the way down basically to uh, the 20th century. But all of a sudden it changed radically where, as one theologian put it, the new orthodoxy was that uh, God is changeable. Uh, he is passable. He does undergo multiple changes of uh, states and almost uh, everybody within the academic community uh, held that position. Um, and they did so for quite a number of reasons. Um, and so, uh, first of all, I want to um, list some of the reasons why they thought it absolutely necessary to change what had been, as I said, axiomatic for so many, so many years. Uh, by the way, if something, you don't understand something, I'm not clear enough, raise your hand and I'll try to clarify it. You can do it right in the midst of my lecture or wait till the end, but whatever. But uh, don't be don't be hesitant to say, uh, I didn't quite get it. It's not because you're dumb, it's because I am not clear enough. Um, so, so what are the reasons? There's three reasons I have for uh, that 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 are given for why uh, <clears throat> this new orthodoxy came about. That God must be passable and changeable. The first is uh, uh, human suffering itself. Um, the claim was made over and over again that surely God suffers with those who suffer. <clears throat> and this is due to a, maybe a greater intensity or um, of the wars, uh, World War One, World War Two, um, the extreme poverty we see in the world, uh, natural disasters. But what became axio again axiomatic, sort of the icon, the icon of this whole sort of human suffering notion was Auschwitz. Auschwitz and the Holocaust um, was sort of a catalyst where theologians felt that in the midst of the Holocaust, in the midst of Auschwitz, surely God suffered with those who were suffering, the Jews and all the others who were, who were uh, persecuted and executed uh, within the Nazi regime. And so the, the, the phrase that was often used was, you know, God, if he is a, to be a God of love, must suffer with those who suffer. The second uh, notion that became prominent was uh, from scripture, uh, especially within the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament, it would seem uh, to profess a God who's passable and a God who suffers uh, he's personal, he's personal, and he's loving, and he's compassionate, and he's engaged in time and history. Uh, and so the Jewish people, uh, because they were God's people, 
he freed them in, from the slavery of Egypt. He recognized their sufferings. He told Moses, you know, I see your suffering. And, uh, and because of that, uh, he responded in compassion and freed them from the slavery of Egypt. He, he, his, his, his suffering was an expression of his love. And the, the prophets, prophets also noted this, that God grieved over the sin of their people. Uh, he became angry at them. Uh, he punishes them. He repents of his anger at times. He forgives. He's merciful. Um, and so, again, we see that God goes through emotional changes of state, uh, as it would appear in, in the Old Testament. Um, and if God, again, is incapable of, of suffering, he's incapable of loving. The third thing has regard point is arguments for the passability of God is the incarnation. It's precisely, many said, that, that because God suffers, that suffering that God experienced was the motivational impetus for him sending, the Father sending his Son into the world. Uh, it's, it's, it's the suffering that he experienced in seeing his people suffering because of sin and death. And because of that, the Father sends his Son into the world, and the Son became became man. And of course, the icon then within the incarnation is the cross. Um, the cross is a sign of God's divine suffering, a sign of God. And then Jesus not only suffers as man, but he suffers as God. You know, we would, as I was talking a moment, we have the communication of idioms where where uh, uh, human attributes are attributed to God, but always to his humanity. Uh, but th those who are promoting the passability of God wants to say that the Son of God suffered not simply as man, but he suffered as God as well. And, and so on the cross, the Father suffers the loss of his Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Son uh, loses the... Uh, suffers because of the loss of his father. Uh, the, the entire trinity suffers uh, within the suffering of, of, of Jesus. So these are what I think are the main reasons why, um, that Christianity, who for centuries um, uh, thought God was immutable and impassable and why he did not suffer from a scriptural point of view. But there's one more. And that is, it was claimed that within the fathers of the church, that the Greek philosophical notions of God were smuggled into the Christian gospel. And what they meant by that was the Greek philosophical notion of God being God being immutable, again, and impassable. Um, and this immutable, impassable God became the God of Christianity a God who was inert and lifeless and apathetic and aloof and uncaring. It was the Greek God that the Christian God became. All right, so these were the arguments. They're quite compelling. I mean, some of you are probably sitting in there thinking, well, I think I can buy some of that, you know. Um, so uh, they at least, you know, they can be quite, 
quite compelling arguments for why God must suffer. Now, how do we respond to the God of the Old Testament? Okay, in light of what those who want to hold for a passable God um, have to say within their interpretation. Um, the Old Testament does speak of God as though he changes uh, and that he experiences emotional changes of state. However, I think to understand what the Old Testament reveals about God, we must put these statements within the broader, his, broader understanding of how God reveals himself within the Old Testament context. What the Old Testament text has to say about God's revelation. Um, and one of the things I think is important is that, you know, God's imminent actions in time and history, God's imminent actions in time and history, reveal God, the nature of God's transcendence where he exists outside of time and history. Uh, he exists in a different manner, in a different order uh, than all than the, his creation. Uh, and I think that that's, that's important. He does act in time and history, but by acting in time and history in the manner in which he does, he reveals himself as one who exists outside of time and history. So, in the Old Testament, God reveals himself to be one God, all right? But this oneness is not just a numerical oneness of being one, but also a oneness in that he's singular and unique. He's one of a kind. He's one of a kind. Uh, and so he differs from all else that is. He differs from all else that is. And because he's a God who differs from all else that is, he has the ability to do things and enact in a manner different from everything else. For example, as he becomes the savior. Uh, he can be a savior because he's not frustrated by the world or the power and might and the vicissitudes of history. They do not, in a sense, limit his ability to act. Uh, he can make covenants, he can save the people again from Egypt, uh, but he can do these kinds of things because he's not controlled by any finite earthly power or situation. The notion of God being the creator, in a sense, is the foundational act that reveals God to be singular in his nature, that he exists in a manner unlike the things that he had created. Uh, he is he who is. And because he's he who is, he brings into existence all else that is. Uh, and again, this distinction between creator and the things that are created demarcate him as existing in a manner different from all else that is. He's not just the, uh, the top of a pyramid. That, that's not how we look at it, you know. We, everything is being, being, exists, and so, you know, you got, you know, rocks that just will exist, but they, they're lifeless. And then you got trees, animals, plants, human beings, and finally you come to God. Well, God's not just in, exists at the top of a pyramid. Where that pyramid stops, God's up in a sense above it. He exists in a different kind of way than everything else that 
has comes to exist because he is the creator of it all. Also, God is all holy. And because he's all holy, he's distinct from all again that is profane. All that is different from him, uh, he makes things holy. Uh, and the reason he makes things holy because he is holiness itself. He's not what's within the world that is uh, marked by sin or evil. <clears throat> now, the conclusion then that I want to draw is that the sin and the evil that we find existing in our world does not and cannot reverberate back into God. Uh, he did evil. He did evil and sin, or and the suffering that these cause are not subsumed back into God, or God uh, uh, being affected by them in the manner of His personal existence. Okay, uh, that God transcended, created the finite realm, but the, with the, the acts within the finite realm do not affect the manner in which he himself is. Um, thus God, in a sense, because he's God, is all-loving, he's all-perfect, he's all-good, he's all-holy. And because he's all-good and all-perfect and all-holy, he doesn't change in his goodness or love or holiness. Uh, he possesses these, in the, we can't fully comprehend it, obviously, but... He possesses these attributes in his very perfection. And thus, he doesn't need to change to become more good or to be more loving or more kind. Uh, and because he's God who exists in a different ontological order than all else that exists, he can never lose something or be deprived of his goodness some that in such a way that he has to get it back to be perfect again. Um, thus, when the Old Testament says that God is angry with sin, we're not saying that he has changed from being loving or good, but when we say that he is angry at sin, he's expressing his unchanging goodness and love and holiness and justice. Uh, what has changed is people's relationship to God and not a change in God himself. Um, if the people repent, they experience his goodness and love as, as one of compassion, mercy, and forgiveness. But that all is wrapped up in the complete goodness of God, the complete love of God. It's because we change that we experience God in different ways. Uh, if we're good, we... We, see, we, see, we know his presence as approval. If we sin, we recognize it as a call to repentance. And then if we repent, we can experience his love in forgiveness. Any questions so far? People agree, disagree, comment? All right, we're all happy? All right. <laughs> We've changed from being sad to happy. Good. All right. Now, for the fathers of the church. Uh, they are often accused of making God, you know, bringing in the, 
Greek philosophy, all right? Uh, but what the fathers of the church were, what they did was uphold that God is immutable and impassable, but they did so so as to ensure the biblical understanding of God. They did not make him lifeless, inert, unloving, aloof, or static, as it's, as it's often claimed. Uh, God is unchanging because of his perfection in his love and his goodness and his holiness. He doesn't need to change to become more loving, more good. And they very much emphasize that. Uh, he cannot become more of what he is. So he's impassable, not because he does not have, in a sense, emotional or passionate sense about him, but he's impassable because he's perfect in his passionate love for humankind. He's perfectly good in creating. You know, it, 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 because of the perfection of his attributes, he is impassably passionate about everything in a sense of uh, that he is and that he does. Um, and so we see in the Fathers of the Church uh, uh, God's passionate love being expressed in in many ways, uh, but the immutability and passability of God protects the biblical proclamation of God's perfection and unchanging, passable goodness, love, and holiness. Now, when we come to Thomas Aquinas, um, Thomas Aquinas in De Deo Uno says, that you know God is immutable because he's being itself he's pure existence he's pure act uh, unlike us who have act and potency uh, we are constantly changing you know we go uh, from from potential to actualizing potential to actualizing potential to actualizing potential um, and but God uh, his very nature his very essence is to be and so he's the perfection of being itself, and therefore he doesn't need to, to change in order to become more divine. In the same way with the Trinity, uh, Aquinas, following Augustine, talks about God being subsistent, the Trinity persons being subsistent relations. Uh, I like to add to that and say that they're subsistent relations fully in act. The Father is Father would fully enact us. The Son is Sonship wholly enact. Uh, the Holy Spirit is love fully enact. And so again, because they're fully enact, they can't enact their fatherhood, sonship, or or love as they're bound together as in relationship to one another. They can't become who they are because they are perfectly enact. They do not need to change in any manner in order to become who they are. And so, therefore, uh, they are unlike us. They are unlike us. Uh, they are, because of the, so they're fully enacted, they are love fully enacted. Uh, and so they're not like, in a sense, a parent. Uh, a parent constantly has to enact various facets of love depending on the situation in which they find themselves. So if... Um, the child runs out into the street. Uh, the mother expresses her love 
by being angry at the child and pulling them back off the street and maybe giving them a little slap on the butt, although you might get to go to prison for doing that these days. But, but anyway, uh, uh, but, so, but, then, but then she hugs the child in forgiveness and love, you know. Uh, and so, so we are always, you know, depending on the situation and acting various facets of love depending on what's taking place, what the situation demands. But God is not in that kind of situation because God is fully in act or the Trinity is fully in act. All the facets of love are always fully in act. He's sort of always in go position. Uh, being love fully in act, his mercy is fully in act, his forgiveness is fully in act, his anger at evil is fully in act. If you're a good and all-loving God, when you see things that are not good and loving and unjust, you're obviously angry about it. Uh, but it's part of love. Anger, righteous anger is part of love being fully in act. He's compassionate and fully in act. And so depending on where we are, we experience God in different ways. Uh, again, as with the fathers, uh, if we're sinful, we experience God's condemnation. If we repent, we, re we experience his mercy uh, and forgiveness. Uh, if we you know, do what he wills, we express, experience his approval and joy. In a sense, God is always in go position. He, you know, we, what, what happens is we experience him in a different kind of way, okay? So God does not suffer. Now this is important. For Aquinas, he takes up the issue of God's compassion. Compassion means suffering with, suffering with. But God does not suffer with us when we suffer, as I tried to, you know, we was arguing previously, all right, because he lives in a different ontological order and our world of sin and suffering does not reverberate back into him. But what's important is that while God does not suffer when we suffer, uh, he is able to do something that none of us can do, all right? When we are with a sick friend, we are compassion. We suffer with that friend. And if we're with someone we really love, like a parent or a child, and they're dying, we are compassionate. We suffer with them. The problem is we cannot rectify the situation in which they, we find our child, our spouse, our friend in. A doctor cannot solve all the problems. We cannot, su we cannot solve all the pro suffering we see in the world today constantly, constantly. But God is in a such a, can do something that none of us can do. Because he is outside the world of sin and death, to be compassionate ultimately means to alleviate the cause of the suffering. If, and that's what we, we would like to do. When we suffer with us, we would love to alleviate the cause of the suffering, that's the, cause, the evil that's causing the suffering. Sometimes we can do that. But ultimately, we can't. And so for Aquinas, What's important is not simply that God suffers with us, 
True compassion is the, the ability to alleviate the cause of the suffering, and that is what God does. And he alleviates the, the, the cause of our suffering by alleviating what, what causes the suffering, which is sin. Sin is what deprives us of the goods that we should have. It's the evil that, that deprives us of the good that should be make, made up of our human life. And the ultimate effect of sin and the suffering that sin caused is the suffering of death. And so what God has done, obviously, is alleviate the causes of evil and suffering within our world, and he does so through the incarnation of his son, uh, son. Okay? So, everybody's happy before I move on? All right? Okay. So the incarnation. The Son of God comes to exist as man to free us from all evil and sin and to recreate us in his own image and likeness. Now, in becoming man, the Son of God does not change in becoming. He remains immutably God himself as God. If he changed in becoming man, he wouldn't, it would, it would, he wouldn't be, be a lesser version of his, of his divinity. So the Son of God, again, without changing, came to exist as man. Uh, and he didn't change as man. man. He's fully man. If he was not fully man, he, he wouldn't, you know, he, uh, it wouldn't be of any salvific importance. What's important is that the Son of God as God actually comes to exist as man in a truly human uh, manner. Okay? Now, uh, What's interesting in John's Gospel, it says the word became flesh. Now you would think, it, normally when we use the word become, matter of fact, every instance is when we use the word become, it means that something has changed. We, be, you know, uh, we become a teacher. We went from not being a teacher to a teacher. We get married. We went from, from being single to now uh, a, a, a spouse. Uh, so we're constantly we're constantly changing, constantly becoming. But when John in the Gospel says the Word became flesh, it's not doesn't mean that he that the Word changed into man. If he changed into man, it would no, no longer be the Word that was man. It's not like the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. That's not the incarnation. Nor does he, you know, uh, humanity change. Uh, it's, John is using this word become in a singular manner. What John means by it is, is that the word, while remaining the word, came to exist as man. It's the coming to exist. This has never happened before. That one being became, came to exist in, a, in another manner so that one and the same person, one and the uh, person exists now both as God and man. What has changed is neither the word nor the humanity. What's the change is that, that he, the Son of God eternally existed as God, but now he also exists, comes to exist or does exist as a truly human being. Uh, so it's a singular, it's, it's a one-off thing. You can, we can't use the word become in, in a manner which John used in his gospel. It's a one-off thing that John 
that has happened and it, 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 it hadn't happened before and it's not going to happen uh, again. Now, what's important is precisely because the Son of God exists as man, he can perform acts as man that can be truly redemptive. He can actually live our human life and in existing in our human life obtain for us um, the re freedom from uh, sin and death. And this is why the communication of idioms is so important. Um, we speak, you know, beginning with Ignatius of Antioch and even back in the scriptures, you know, we talk about God suffering, God dying, God rising from the dead, God suckling from Mary's breast, from being hungry and thirsty. Um, all of these are expressions of the communication of idioms. Uh, human attributes are predicate of, of the Son of God. Who is it who's eating or suffering? It's the Son of God. What's the manner in which he's suffering? He's suffering as man. Who's really born of Mary? Theotokos, the Son of God. What's the, in a manner in which he is born as man? And, and, and this is very, but only if he exists as man can he really suffer as man. Only if he really exists as man can he be born as man. Uh, and so the, this, these, these things are, this, this communication of idioms is, is very important. When I taught at Oxford, <clears throat> I had this analogy, I guess it's an analogy, or a story, a story I guess, that I sort of become what somewhat famous for. <laughs> so I told him, my story was, so Jesus goes to Lazarus, well to Mary and Martha's home uh, for dinner, and Lazarus is there. And uh, Martha, who was ahead of her time, she actually she was an American. Uh, she she <laughs> she served uh, 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 carrots with garlic dip. Okay, <laughs> and and Jesus ate the carrots with the garlic dip, and he found it was they were very good. He was happy that he had created carrots and garlic dip, and it was nice to eat them. Uh, uh, but Lazarus ate a rotten carrot and he died. All right. So four days later, Jesus comes to the tomb. Uh, now, what's important here is that Jesus, the Son of God, ate the carrots as man. All right. Who ate the carrot was the Son of God. How did he eat the carrot as man? Well, he couldn't eat them as God because God doesn't have teeth. But, but he was able to eat them as man. So four days later, though, he comes to uh, Lazarus' tomb. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. Who raised Lazarus from the dead? The Son of God. Now, did he raise Lazarus from the dead as God or as man? He ate the carrots as man. Now, did he raise Lazarus from the dead as God or as man? What do you think most of my students said? As God. As God. 
Who, anybody else want to go that way? Well, that's what your students said. Yeah, I know that's what my students, I mean, does anybody, yeah, right, most of them said it's got, but then you, I usually had some sort of sheepish girl, uh, young woman, and she would say, uh, as man, and she's absolutely right. All Jesus' actions are theandric actions. It's the Son of God who ate the carrotest man and says it's the Son of God who raised Lazarus from dead. Now, he may have done it by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's the human Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth. All right? It's, it's the Son of God through, in his, through his humanity who says, Lazarus, come forth. He's raising Lazarus from the dead as man. And the, the reason I stress it is because he saves us as man. He becomes the resurrection of life as man. It's through the human suffering of Jesus, the Son of God, that becomes the way of salvation for us. Uh, it's the human Jesus who offers himself in a human manner to the Father and the cross that becomes uh, uh, the means of our redemption. It's through the will, the human will, not the divine will of Jesus, but the human will of Jesus through which he offers himself that be, and be, so becomes salvific. Uh, all the things Jesus does is, is, is theandric. It's, and so it's, it's, it's by taking on our suffering and sin, he saves us from our suffering and sin as, as man. Um, and so... Uh, what's important then is that he continues to do this in his resurrection because Jesus offered himself perfectly as man the father was so pleased that he raised him from the dead and so we we now are saved from the suffering of sin and death and from the evil of this world by being united to the risen Jesus Human suffering now must be seen in light of the risen Jesus and understood in the light of the resurrection and in the, in, within the ecclesial context of the body of Christ. Those who have a for passable God, God, they have no ecclesiology. They have no sense of redemption. They have no appreciation of the humanity of, of Jesus whatsoever. Uh, they've locked God in human suffering and locking God in human suffering, they lock, lock, they, they lock God out of really being able to save us um, as a human being. So to abide in the risen Christ, to abide in the risen body of Christ through baptism and through the Eucharist is to achieve the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life we already share in Jesus' risen nature in which he has conquered sin and death and therefore conquered already all suffering. We experience that here and now already as baptized Christians and particularly in the Eucharist. We, if you have real presence, you're actually really abiding in the risen Jesus as fully as possible here in this life. We abide in him as he really is. And so we have then the experience and the assurance of what will become at the end of time when Jesus returns in glory. Um, and what's also then important 
is not only do we abide in Jesus, the head of the body of Christ, but as the head of the body of Christ, Jesus here and now suffers along with us. As a matter of fact, you know, when Paul says, when, in Paul's conversion, Jesus doesn't say, you know, you're persecuting um, those who believe me, you're persecuting me, okay? Uh, we, it's the head. Jesus is the one who experiences as head the suffering of his body. And therefore, not only do we, does we share in his resurrection, he can shares now in our suffering that it pertains to us in this life as members of, uh, 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 as the members of his body uh, suffers. But we have the knowledge, we have the knowledge and faith and reality that all of this has already been overcome and we'll find a completion again when Jesus returns in glory. So in conclusion, God, the Trinity, is perfect in love and goodness and holiness. Uh, this is fully expressed in the incarnation through the death and resurrection of Jesus who overcame sin and death and evil and thus conquered and it took away what brings about our suffering. We are recreated in Christ as a new creation in him. Because we are a new creation in him, we already, here and now, have overcome the evils that cause suffering and have the assurance of that fulfillment when Jesus comes at the end of time. And it's through faith and baptism that we die and rise with Christ and come into communion with the risen Jesus. And again, because of that, we long for the day when he will return and we will fully share in the glory of Jesus as children of the Father. Amen.